Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 2, 12 through 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am sore and tired. We had a great day at the building yesterday. We put in a lot of work. Uh, We got nervous at 8 a.m. There was about five of us. We got real nervous, but everybody started showing up throughout the day. And uh, we got a ton done. It's beginning to look like our church, um, a little bit less like a 1970s church, a little bit less like your grandma's church, let's just say that, more like our church. uh, We got uh, all of the carpet out of the building. Praise God for that. Uh, we got the, most of the classrooms and all the offices painted. The sanctuary is being painted. Um, it started this past week to be finished this week ahead. The atrium demo is almost um, all the way finished. Our stage re- redesign is in the middle. Uh, they're in the middle of that right now. And so there's just all kinds of stuff going on. We are really thankful for the volunteers that came out and, and have helped us. And we want you to keep praying for us. Pray for the workers that are working over there that they... That everything goes well, that we don't, uh, nobody gets hurt. There's been a few surprises. Uh, pray that there's less surprises. Uh, and also just pray that everything keeps moving forward. Lord willing, we're, we're shooting for August. We're shooting for August. So hopefully we'll stay on our time, time frame, but you never know with all the stuff that's, uh, that we're doing. So just keep us in our prayers. We're excited and God's doing some good stuff over there, but there's a long way to go still. Well, let me pray for us. I need a lot of help this morning. We can jump in and study our text. God, you are gracious and you give us everything we need for life and godliness. And we need more than anything else to understand your word, to understand who you are. And so for that, we need you to open our hearts and open our minds to hear your word. Um, Father God, I am very tired. I need your help this morning. I need you to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. And would you anoint me to preach your word? Would you anoint Um, everyone in this room, to hear your word. And would you give them a mind to know, so ears to hear, a mind to know, and a heart to believe. 
Would you do this for your glory and our good? We also want to pray for Isla Gallier and all the Gallier family. Lord God, we believe that you are at work in her body, and we thank you for doing that. We ask that you would bring complete and total healing to her little body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Well, we are studying the book of John, the Gospel of John. And last week we saw Jesus was at a wedding with a few of his disciples, and he performed his first sign of his ministry. If you remember, Jesus turned the purification water into the best wine. And this wasn't just some kind of cool parlor trick. It was a sign that pointed to who Jesus was, the Messiah or the Son of God, and a sign that pointed towards what he came to do, namely, make us right with God, forgive us of our sins, and his own life, death, and resurrection. Well, today we come to what is arguably the most interesting events in the life of Jesus. Jesus, the meek and mild, ever patient Jesus, makes a whip out of cords, drives the cattle and all of the people who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers out from the temple. He dumps the money on the ground, flips over their tables. In this scene, we have meek and mild Jesus wrecking shop in the temple. Now, I find this event interesting for several reasons. First, this is one of the only places where we see Jesus get angry enough to flip tables. And he does this without sinning at all. Okay? Remember, Jesus is the perfect man. That means passion and anger and zeal are good things if they are directed and expressed in, uh, like, in the right way with self-control. The Bible tells us, be angry and do not sin. If you, pri- if you pride yourself on never getting angry, well, then you're disobeying the scriptures. Because there are some things that are meant to make you angry because your anger is meant to move you forward with righteous anger to stop whatever bad thing is happening, whatever injustice is happening. Anger is meant to be a good thing that motivates you to action. Well, secondly, this is the first truly public sign of Jesus' ministry. And so it has to have some kind of greater significance. Last week, Jesus turned the water into wine, but only a few people know it, knew it. Even the guys that drank it, they just said, oh, this is amazing wine. They didn't know how Jesus actually did it. Today, don't miss this. Jesus walks into the most famous temple in the known world and absolutely causes a ruckus. He absolutely causes a scene. He's doing this on purpose. He's doing this very deliberately for specific reasons. And so we need to study this to find out what those reasons are. And then lastly, and this one might shock you, Jesus actually did this twice. Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Let me show you my evidence for this. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe Jesus cleansing the temple as his last public act of ministry. John says it was his first. Well, liberal college professors use this as supposed evidence that the gospels contradict one another. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke say Jesus cleansed the temple right before going to the cross. John says he did it three years before that. Which one is true? See, you can't trust the Bible. Well, let me show you why I think they are dead wrong. And the simplest explanation for the different timing, and actually we're going to find out today, the different wording that you find in these two accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple is that Jesus actually did it twice. Once to begin his public ministry and once to conclude his public ministry. Now, if you're just reading your Bible, you know, Bible in a year plan, it might take you several weeks or several months to get to these different accounts through the gospel so you might not really pick up on it. If you just read through the Gospels cleansing the temple, you probably won't pick up on the subtle differences. But when you study the details, you come to realize that these must be two separate accounts. So here's what happens in all the accounts. Jesus goes in, makes a whip, which I always find an interesting detail. Like he, he wasn't concealed carrying, you know, Indiana Jones here, just whoops, just brings it out. No, no, he actually takes time to find some cords and puts it together. And then he drives out all the animals, drives out all the religious leaders. He flips over the tables, dumps the money out. He does that in all the accounts. But he, listen to this. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, the synoptic gospels, Jesus says this, is it not written? My house, so my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the, 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 the two things in there, are very important details. He says, my house, and secondly, he says, you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus uses far more incendiary and judgmental language than we find here in our text in John. John says, John records Jesus saying this, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. But the, so that's what he says in the first time through. But the second time through, at the end of his ministry, Jesus calls all of these religious leaders robbers or thieves. So his, get out of here, fly. So his incendiary language at the end of his ministry, when he cleansed the the temple the second time is actually what gets him killed. Mark says, after Jesus called them all robbers, quote, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. You hear that? For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So in John, three years before, in the first cleansing, Jesus says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. That's less intense. And so the religious leader's response is they come to him and they ask him questions. Basically, by what authority do you do this? Show us a sign why we should believe you about all this stuff. But the second time when Jesus comes in and says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you guys are all a bunch of robbers, they get so mad they want to kill him. And a week later, they do, right? Also, only in John, listen, only in John, does Jesus mention the temple being destroyed? That's an important detail because if you remember in Jesus' trial, that's what it says in Mark chapter 14, 56 through 59. Quote, now the chief priest and the whole council 
were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So here it is. They got so mad after Jesus cleansed the temple and he claimed it was his house and he called them robbers that now they're trying to find testimony at a trial to get Jesus publicly condemned for crucifixion. But look at the problem that arises. But they found none. What? For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now this is interesting. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands, with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now this always confused me because if Jesus only cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry, that means he did it a week prior. Do, do these people have short-term memory loss? Right? He just said all this stuff a week ago and you can't even remember at his trial what Jesus said. Right? That doesn't make sense. Why do they contradict each other? Remember they said, Jesus said, I will destroy this temple. You read John's account, guess what? It says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again. Jesus never says he's gonna destroy the temple. He says, you destroy the temple and I'll, and I'll bring it back again, right? In three days. Well, I think the reason this is is because Jesus didn't say, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again the second time he cleansed the temple. John's the only one who records it. I think he did it three years prior. So now these witnesses, they're like, well, what did he say? He said something about the temple. I remember it and it made me really mad. I remember that too. But they contradicted each other and they didn't have corroborating evidence. So there's three really good reasons to think Jesus cleansed the temple twice. And one more that's kind of circumstantial that let me mention it to you. So let me go through the three. One, biblical chronology. John says he did it first and Matthew, Mark, and Luke say he did it last. Gen Jesus's cleansing of the temple <clears throat> acted as bookends to his public ministry. Secondly, the wording in these accounts are very different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the same. John's different. And then third, we see the response of the Jewish leaders is totally different. They just ask questions, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they get really angry enough to kill him in John. And then the fourth one is interesting. It's from the book of Leviticus. I know you don't read that book very often. So let me just see if you can remember this. Bless you. Here's what happens in Leviticus. You remember that the, the, the priest, um, if they were ever to go into a house and they found something unclean, think mold, black mold, anything impure, even a spot on the wall. The priest was caused to go in there. That made that house unclean. The people were to move out of that house. The priest was go to go in there and essentially bleach the whole thing, air it all out, cleanse it all. But then the people were to remain outside their home for a set a period of time. And then the priest was meant to go back in there again. And if he found that there was still rottenness, there was still impurity, there was still growth and sickness in the walls, then the, temp then the temple, then the building would be condemned and it was literally commanded that the, the building would be tore apart and not one stone left on top of one another. They didn't want anybody else to get sick. Well, I think that's exactly what Jesus Christ does in his cleansing of the temple. He goes in the first time to begin his ministry. He finds rottenness inside. He pronounces a condemnation on it, a woe unto it. He cleanses it. And then he comes back after three years of his ministry. And guess what he finds? He finds that the people, the priests have not changed at all. They've made their ho this house, what's meant to be a house of prayer, a den of robbers. And he pronounces a woe upon it. And then later, remember in his ministry, he says, 
uh, that eventually the temple will be destroyed. And that's exactly what happens in 70 AD, that the temple is destroyed and not one stone is, lay, is left on top of one another. And th that's what happens. Uh, Jesus's prophecy is ultimately, ultimately fulfilled in 70 AD. So four reasons, three really good ones, I think, and one pretty good, pretty compelling to me. So that's why I think that, that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. But here's the big question. Why? Why did Jesus do this? To answer that question, we need to study our text. Let's open up our Bibles. John chapter 2, verse 13. Here it is. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the Passover was an annual celebration that commemorated the night that God delivered their ancestors from the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. If you remember the story, the Jews had been oppressed in an Egyptian slavery for 400 years and God raised up a deliverer, this man named Moses, who was commanded by God to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the planet at the time and he said, who's God? Never heard of him. I'm not going to do that. And he, he said, I've got gods. There's gods over Egypt. I don't believe this God, this Yahweh God, I don't believe he's any more powerful. So no, I'm not gonna let your people go. They're my slaves and I'm building a kingdom. I'm building the pyramids. I'm building all this stuff on their backs. So I get too much free labor out of this. No, I'm not gonna do it. Well, if you know the story, you know what happens. God chooses to send 10 different plagues on the land, on the people, to discredit Egypt's gods. Each one of the plagues were, was sent uh, to one, basically to make one of, the, one of Pharaoh's gods look stupid. And uh, Pharaoh, again, refused to listen, refused to listen, refused to listen. But then for the 10th and final plague, God said that I'm coming to town. I'm sending the angel, I'm sending what we call the angel of death to town, and this angel is going to kill the firstborn from every single family, Jewish or Egyptian. Any firstborn will die this night unless they slaughter a lamb, a firstborn lamb, and put its blood on the doorpost of their house. If they did that, if they obeyed, if they believed God's word and trusted him and obeyed and did this kind of obscure thing by killing a lamb and putting its blood on the doorpost and they stayed inside their house that night, when the angel of death came, let's say, he would pass over their house. He would see the blood and pass over them, and, and their child would be saved from the judgment of God. That's where the word Passover comes from. So Jesus here is going up to Jerusalem to celebrate this day where God's judgment passed over his ancestors who put the blood on the doorposts. And Jesus, while in Jerusalem, goes to the temple. Here's what it says in verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Well, before we get too, in, too deep into this, just what is a temple? A temple to put it really simply, is a place where human beings go to meet with God. It was a place where heaven and earth touched. It was a place where the eternal and the temporal met, where the supernatural and natural 
came together. The temple was a deeply spiritual and sacred place where man could meet with God. And it's interesting, as you study civilizations, ancient civilizations, far away back as you can study them, even to the present day, every time you have people coming together, you have human beings creating temples. From ancient Egypt to the Vikings to you could go anywhere at any time and you're going to find human beings making temples to worship a God. Now why is that? Why is that? Why do all humans everywhere naturally want to worship? Why do they build temples? You say, well, we don't do that. Have you ever been to a college football game? There's nothing closer to pagan worship than a college football game, okay? You have men ripping their shirts off, painting their faces, chanting chants, dancing, crying, weeping, yelling, shouting. If they could cut themselves for their team to win, they would do it, right? They would do it. This is a, a very example, a great example of a, of a modern day uh, temple. But why, why, why do we do this? Why, why, do human being, why have human beings always done this? Because we have always known that there's more to this world than what meets the eye. Every single culture and every single civilization in the world has recognized that behind this world, there has to be a uncreated creator. Behind the physical world is a spiritual world. Behind this temporary world, there has to be an eternal world. So people built temples to try and get in touch with that creator, to tap into that eternal power and come to understand the ultimate meaning of the universe. But temples were also the place where mankind made sacrifices to their gods. Every religion had some form of sacrifice going on in a temple. Whether you're giving money whether you're burning incense, whether you're offering prayers, where you're killing animals. People even killed themselves, right? The Aztecs killed hundreds of thousands of people, right? There's all kind of sacrifice that goes on in, in temples. Why? Because there has been this sense in the heart of man that there is a God out there and somehow we have offended him and there's, there's a break in a relationship and we owe him allegiance and we owe him sacrifices. And so we come into these temples and we offer our worship and we hope to be received. We hope to be forgiven by this God. We want to turn away his wrath and pro procure his favor. Well, when the temple, the Jewish temple was first constructed and it was finished King Solomon had this amazing dedication ceremony. And here's a few things that happened from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. You can read this whole thing later. I'll just point to a few things. Quote, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In the Hebrew there, it's this term called the Shekinah glory. It's visible with the human eye, okay? And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When Now listen, this is not like a little personal experience in somebody's heart. This is not somebody who ate the wrong weed and woke up with some dreams, okay? This is public theology here, okay? This is seen by all the people, okay? 
When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for a steadfast love endures forever. Now, God tells Solomon to build him a place to dwell on earth, the temple. And Solomon did it. And the day he dedicated it, God moved into town. God's tangible presence, his Shekinah glory filled the Lord's house, symbolizing to all the earth that the creator is here and can be known. Your maker, the one that you have this sense, you know that there's something out there, you know there's something more to life. That guy, I'm gonna say it guy, okay? That God has moved into the neighborhood. That God has made himself known. This is an amazing scene. This is something totally unique. Do you realize what would happen in town that day? You would go and you say, did you see that God is here? Did you see that God is in town? Your atheist neighbor would say, what God? I don't believe in God. And you would say, that God, the, the God who is there, the, do you see the giant glowing orb out there at, coming out of the temple? That's him. Do you see all the temple priests on the outside going, we didn't do that and we're not going in. Right? Everybody's like, no, go in and find out. <laughs> no, I'm not going in. Right? What's going on? Like, there's flames of fire, like literally here. Like we didn't start the fire. God started the fire, right? They could literally just point, what God? That God. The God who's in there. The God who's revealed himself from heaven. The creator that has stepped into his creation and letting the world know, I'm here. It's a special moment in the history of the world. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place, this temple, as a house for myself, as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among the people, here's the deal. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. He's telling Solomon, this temple is meant to be a house of prayer. This temple is meant to be a place where human beings come in humility. They're reminded of their sin. They ask God for forgiveness. They pray to God. When, when they're walking in pride, what does that mean? They forget about God. I don't need God. And all they think about is their own life. All they think about is their own needs. All they think about is me, 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 me. I'm gonna send difficult things into their life to wake them up. And then they're meant to come to my house and to cry out to me. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The temple was the place where mankind was, meet, was meant to meet with this real God pray and have their sins forgiven through the giving of a sacrifice. It was the holiest and most sacred place on all the earth. But it actually also came with a warning. Again, 2 Chronicles 7. But if you turn aside 
and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and you go and serve other gods and worship them, that I, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you, and this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among the people. So here's what he's saying. If you worship me, it's going to go well for you. If you flee and you worship other gods, the gods of the surrounding nations, then I'm going to destroy this temple and I'm going to spread you over the face of the earth. Well, that's exactly what happened. God's people turned away from him and worshiped other gods and plucked them up. And God plucked them up from their land. Remember from Ezra and Nehemiah. And he let the surrounding nations come in and destroy the temple, carry them off to foreign lands. Then many years later, we saw this, right? They built the new temple. And do you remember what happened when they built the new temple? All the old folks, all the old heads, what did they do? They wept. Why? Because this temple was pathetic compared to the old temple. And the glory of the Lord never entered, never came back. The new temple was never as good as the old temple. So here's the scene that we need to understand. There's a lot of Old Testament background here. Jesus, the Son of God, the very glory of God, the image of the invisible God, Colossians tells us, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. And according to John, he's also the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, right? Is now walking into the temple. I don't think we understand the significance of this. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And he was a literary scholar. He specialized in myths. He specialized in folklore. He specialized in pagan gods and pagan religion and understood all, the, this, all this kind of history. Uh, but he was, he, was, he was an atheist until he met J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. And one day they were walking and they were discussing and Lewis brought up Lewis and Tolkien, Tolkien, was, was, Tolkien brought up this idea that, hey, why do you think all of these religions and all of these myths and all of them talk about temples and talk about sacrifice and talk about the one who will kill the dragon and rescue the, and rescue the damsel in distress? Why do they all have such similar themes? And Lewis says, I don't know. That, that's, that is actually pretty bizarre. I don't really know why that. And he says, because all of those things were myths that were pointing forward to the true myth. Jesus Christ is the myth that became fact. And other, in other words, Jesus Christ is the true temple that all the other temples in the world point towards. That's what's going on here. So Jesus, the true temple, the place where man and God meet, Jesus in himself is 100% man, 100% God. He is the true temple. Jesus Christ, the true temple, comes walking into the Jewish temple. What do you think he's going to find there? Is he going to find, like we saw in 2 Chronicles, people bowing down and in humility and offering their prayers and sacrifice to God? Is he going to find people repenting of their sin and turning from their sin? No. Nope. He's basically going to find a food court. That's what he's going to find. That's going to help us understand why Jesus gets so frustrated. 
He doesn't find people zealous for God and humble before him in worship. Nope. He says, this is what Jesus says. The religious leaders have turned God's house, my father's house, he says, into a house of trade. Key piece, house of trade. Here's what he means. God's house has been turned into a place where the religious leaders barter and trade with worshipers. They are taking advantage of the people and have basically created a monopoly on worship. Now, let's get some background here of what's going on. During this time, Jews were required to go to the temple to, uh, to practice the, the um, Passover, to have the pa- Passover celebration. And, and if you're over the age of 19, every single year, if you were a man over the age of 19, you had to make a pilgrimage back to the temple and pay your temple tax. Okay, that had to happen. Well, these, this is called the, the Jewish diaspora. They had been spread over kind of the face of the known world. So they were like 10, 30, 100 150 miles away from Jerusalem. And so they had a long and arduous trek to come back to the temple, right? Well, that's a hard trek all by itself. It's even more difficult if you're leading animals through the desert to get back there, right? So what they would do is they would bring some money instead. And once they got to Jerusalem, they would purchase an animal and then they would sacrifice it there in the temple. Well, it didn't take long for the temple priests to realize what was going on and they wanted to get in on that action. And so what they decided to do was, hey, let's start selling the animals ourselves, right? Well, that's kind of like, you know, Disney World saying, hey, everybody comes here and then they get hungry. Let's start selling food ourselves, right? Oh, it sounds like a great idea. And then you show up to Disney World and the hot dogs are $15 a piece, Right? <laughs> I just had a, I had a brother, I had, a, I had, I have a brother who would literally, he was so cheap, he would go to the trash can and he would get plastic cups out of the trash can, take it to the bathroom, wash them out and then go get a refill at the place with somebody else's cup, right? And I was like, hey man, you're washing it, makes sense to me, right? Makes sense to me. Why, why? Disneyland, Disney World, they have a monopoly. They have a monopoly, right? So they can charge whatever they want to charge. You go to a football game, the drinks are exorbitant, right? They're they're, they're taking advantage of you because you're all here. That's what the Jewish leaders started to do. They started overcharging for the oxen. They started overcharging for the sheep. They started overcharging for the pigeons. So they were taking advantage of the poor, and then you had the temple tax. And the, and the Jewish leader said, we want it in this specific type of currency. Well, these people were spread all over the world, so they had all kinds of different currency. So they would bring their currency, and the only exchange rate you could get was in the temple, and they were taking advantage of people in the temple as well. So they were literally created this monopoly. Now, if you think this is capitalism, this isn't capitalism. This is what's called crony capitalism. This is insider trading. This is making deals behind closed doors. This isn't free market economics, all right? And so Jesus walks in and he sees all this underhanded dealing going on and he gets pretty uh, frustrated here. Let's look what he does. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Okay, scene one, Jesus makes whip. 
No doubt he makes whip specifically for the animals. If you've ever moved animals, you need something like this, right? He's whipping them out of there. He's moving them out of the temple. And no doubt a priest gets some of that as well. A priest gets some of that action too. It's like, what? Right? Oh, he's I love it because you have a priest, right? A priest, he, probably not a violent man, probably not, you know, he's probably pretty gentle. He's a, he's a, he's a shrewd guy that's taking advantage of people. And Jesus is a man's man. I'm just going to say, I don't know any way to say that. He is masculine enough that no one here steps up and says, who do you think you are? They all run out of the temple and then they talk later. That's what we have. And when we get outside of the temple, all they say was, basically, who, who gave you this authority? They don't stop him. Nobody stops him, right? Jesus, as a carpenter, no doubt he's got veins pulsating out of his forearms. He's a strong looking man. He makes this whip. They hightail it out of there. Right? That's what happens. Now, I just want to ask you, is this the Jesus that you serve? Or is this the Jesus that you know? Is this masculine, strong, authoritative Jesus, the Jesus who did this twice, is this the Jesus that's in your mind? Is this the Jesus that's in your heart? Too many of us have a fig, some kind of make-believe Mr. Rogers type of Jesus. It's milk toast, soft, limp-wristed. That's not this Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the scriptures. That's not Jesus of Nazareth. Did Jesus do this in complete control? Did Jesus do this gentle? Did Jesus do this patiently? Yeah. Do I understand that? I don't. I don't, right? Jesus, I thought you were humble. Why am? Right? Okay. Okay, we know he did it. We know he didn't, he didn't sin when he did it. Right? <clears throat> Jesus said, why did he do it? John tells us, zeal for my father's house consumes me. Or the, the, the uh, King James Version said, zeal for my father's house eats me up. Man, we can't please men and please God at the same time. Jesus was pleasing God in this moment. They had turned his father's house into a house of trade. And he told those who, or I'm sorry, then he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned them. <laughs> Jesus here is just, takes their, takes their money and just pours it out in front of them. You're There's no complaining here. They know what he's doing is right. They know what they've been doing is wrong. They know they've been taking care of the poor. So Jesus just tips a 40 here, right? And just dumps the money right over and just slowly trickles them out and then flips over their tables in front of them. They do nothing. And he says this, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now this is interesting because every temple up until this moment, every single temple on the planet has been a place of trade. 
It's where I go to bring my sacrifices, my offerings, my petitions, my prayers to some God, and I want him to trade me. Take what I have and give me what you have. Here's my offering. Here's my sacrifices. Give me the life that I want. Give me fruitfulness. Give me children. Give me good weather. Give me a, a death that's way down the road, right? That's what a temple is. A temple is a house of trade. And Jesus flips the scripts and says, no, 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 my temple was never meant to be a house of trade. What does he mean by that? Well, then look what he says. So the Jews said to him, or no, I'm sorry, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, the first half of the book of John has often been called the book of signs because John shows us seven different signs that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. And then the second half of the book of John is all about his death and resurrection, the ultimate sign of who he is. Okay? So these people, but you'll also see in the book of John that you can come to Jesus in two ways. You can come to Jesus humbly and see, what he's, and see what he's done, and see who he is, and you can say, I believe, help my unbelief. Or you can swagger up to Jesus and say, show me a sign. And Jesus is like, nope, no thanks. Next week, we're going to see that Jesus does this because he knows precisely what's in the heart of man. He knows who will receive him. He knows who won't receive him. And for those who are humble, he will show signs. And those who are proud, he says, nope, you won't see it. Jesus says this. They want a sign. Jesus is like this. He says this. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now this is one of those cryptic sayings of Jesus. This is like a time release bomb. A time release capsule that doesn't go off in the apostles' minds until after Jesus' resurrection. He says, here's a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jewish leaders don't get it. And they say this. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. This is Herod rebuilding the temple. It has taken 46 years to get to this point. It's going to take another 30 years to finish it. And then it's only finished for a few short years before it gets ultimately destroyed when Rome falls, right? <clears throat> so the Jews then say, the Jew, oh, I'm sorry, where am I at? I will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Here's what John writes. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What is going on here? When Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up again. What's he talking about? He's talking about the temple of his body. He is the place where man and God meet. He is 100% man, 100% God. And when he says that I am the temple, here's what he's telling us. Just like the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament where the neighbors could point it, what God are you talking about? That God, the God who is there, we can now look at Jesus and point, he is the God who is there. He is the God who came. 
He is a historical fact. He is a historical reality. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. And what, what it's telling us is that ache we have to meet with God, that ache we have for eternal life, that ache we have to know that there's something behind the world, that ache has an answer. That hunger has a satisfaction. The hunger leads us to Christ. Jesus is that God. He is the meaning of the universe. He is the reason for our existence. He is the God you are looking for. You two saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Then find Christ. He's what you're looking for. He's the, the reason for all philosophy. He's the answer to every question. He is the one that we were all created to see, to love, to adore. St. Augustine said, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. But secondly, we see something The temple was the place that mankind meant, went to go to meet with God. But Jesus is the temple that came to us. In every other temple in the world, you must go to it. You must pay homage. You must make your pilgrimage, just like Mecca in Islam. You must go there sometime in your life. Jesus is the temple that comes to us. Every other temple, you must go to it. You must sacrifice in it. You must give your money, pay your homage, and offer your worship and sacrifices there. That's how humans do deals with God. That's how they barter and trade with God. That's how they bridge that gap between man and God. It was their religious effort, their religious work that quote-unquote appeased or did business with the gods. But in Jesus, it is totally different. Jesus came to us. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not here to do deals. I'm not here to make trades. I don't need any of your worship. I don't need any of your righteousness. I don't need anything from you. I came here to give you everything you need. What do I mean by that? Not only is Jesus the God who came to us, but Jesus is also the one who does all the work to bridge the gap between mankind and God. Jesus obeys God in our place for us. Jesus goes to the cross, dies our death that we deserve for us. Jesus resurrects to give us eternal life for us. Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father to pray for us. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in heaven now for us. One day Jesus Christ will come back again and set up his kingdom on this earth and restore all, all of known existence, all the galaxies. He's doing all of that for us. Jesus has done all the work necessary to save us from our sins and bring us into a world without end. Jesus is the temple he is the only place where you can have your sins forgiven and get out from under the righteous judgment of God. He is the Passover lamb, but he's, also, he's more than that. He's also the high priest. He's also the sacrifice itself. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Do you see what the Bible is saying here? When Jesus says, I am the temple, he's totally redefining and changing the way that human beings meet and relate with God. 
When the temple, when Jesus Christ, the temple came, it was a death to all religion. It was, it was, a, it was a final blow to all religion. That's why years later, the temple was ultimately destroyed and the Jews could no longer sacrifice. The Jews no longer had a place to meet with God. Why? God did it because the only place where humankind can meet with, with, meet with God now is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says later, simply, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. And he's saying, I've done everything necessary to bridge the gap between mankind and a holy God. Now here's a couple really practical ways this will change you if you believe it. First, if you believe that Jesus is the temple and the sacrifice that makes us right with God, you will be radically humble and zealously bold. Radically humble and zealously bold. First, what this all means for us is that we are saved by grace and not works, but people don't understand that. People even think maybe this is a temple. Like this isn't a temple. We're not in a temple. We're gathering together to worship God, but this isn't a temple. See, a temple, when, when he says, you made my house a house of trade, so I've met so many people that, that follow Jesus or think they're Christian, but they come to a Sunday gathering like this or they come to God in essence to trade. They say, God, look at my, look what, look at my obedience this past week. Look how many times I read the Bible. Look how many times I prayed. Look at my morality. Aren't I a good person? I didn't look at porn this week. I didn't yell at my kids this week. Right, look, look, at, look at me. All right, don't I deserve something from you? Don't I deserve a good life? Don't I deserve forgiveness? Don't I deserve a good feeling that makes me feel happy and clappy and I walk out of here rejuvenated for a week ahead? God, look at my life. Look what I've done. We come in here to trade. This is no temple. Jesus doesn't make trades. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags, the Bible says. The only trade you get is my life for yours. Jesus fulfilled everything in our place for us. Jesus gave it all. We must, see, this is, what, this is what makes you humble. You throw out this idea that you can negotiate with God. See, this is what would have happened in the temple. You, you bring it, they say, all right, I need an oxen. All right, $150. $150? $140, Right? You start negotiating. You start trading. That's what's going on. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's a house of negotiation. This is not a house of negotiation. When you understand that the only way to be saved is through Christ's perfect substitutionary atonement on your, there's no more negotiating. The only way I can be saved is through Christ. I have nothing to offer. The only thing I bring to this work of salvation is my sin that makes it necessary. Christ does it all for me. That makes you humble. There's no more negotiating with God. You gotta throw out this whole marketplace idea that I'll give you a little bit of my life if you give me the life that I want. No, Jesus gave it all for us and now if we believe, we no longer live our lives for him. So first off, this, this idea is incredibly freeing because God makes me righteous in Christ through the work of Jesus. I don't participate in it, but it's also terrifying because if God did it all for me, 
then that means he could ask anything from me and how could I ever deny him? 10% of your finances? I would never. You don't get it. Coming to church every single Sunday? You don't get it. Right? Like if you, do, if you, if you don't want to do that, you don't get it. See, we're not bartering here. This isn't Mark. We are so excited about what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're so grateful. We joyfully come to worship God. We joyfully give. We joyfully serve. We joyfully lay down our life for Christ. Secondly, Jesus is God. And that means if, you've, if you found him, you have found the key that unlocks the universe. You found the key that unlocks all of philosophy, the key that locks all, unload, all, unlocks all of science, the key that locks, unlocks all the meaning of the universe. You found the treasure hid in the field and you will joyfully give everything you've got to purchase it. Jesus is the temple. We don't go to him to trade. And then Jesus does something fascinating. He goes to the right hand of the Father and he tells us several different places that you, your body, Christian believer, your body now becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we come together in a church, we're being built up as a spiritual body or as a spiritual temple that the Lord moves into himself. There's no more just like pointing out there. What God? The God over there. The God of Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, yes. But also the God that's in here. The God that's brought a supernatural love that I can't fathom and put it in here. The God that's applied grace to my life. The God that's given me righteousness that's beyond me. The God that's motivated me with a mission bigger than anything else in the world. The God of all joy that's put joy in my heart that nothing in the world can take away. A peace that passes all understanding. I'll point at Jesus, but I can also point in here. Made us a temple of the living God. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your word. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. You are beyond our comprehension. The God man, how could we finite human beings get our mind around you? I don't know. I pray that you give us faith to believe it. I pray that you would convict us of our sins. We would turn from our sins and believe in Jesus Christ and you would give us this free gift. Free gift. Thank you for it. Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread, the Passover celebration, and you broke the bread and you said, this is my body that will be broken for you. And then you took the cup of wine and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood that will be spilled to cover your sins. And you commanded us to eat it until you return again. And so we do that thankful in, in thankfulness for what you've done for us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for dying up for us. Thank you for filling us with your Holy Spirit. Would you help us eat this meal in faith today? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.